Over the past few months, many new revelations have surfaced surrounding the Trump administration. And while the nature of those revelations varies, one name in particular has emerged in reporting again and again. That name is Michael Flynn. Flynn was a critical player in Trump's campaign, and he served as national security advisor before he was forced to resign in February. His resignation came after he misled administration officials about the nature of his conversations with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak. So if Flynn resigned in February, why does his name keep popping up in headlines? How do Flynn's actions fit into the larger story surrounding possible coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia? I'm Allison Michaels, and this is Can He Do That?, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. This week, though, we're flipping the script a little to make that he, not the president, but Michael Flynn. What can Flynn do when it comes to conversations with the Russians, accepting money from foreign governments, and misleading officials? Which of Flynn's reported actions up to this point might have broken the law? And just to be extra clear here, at this point, we do not know all of the details of exactly what Flynn has and hasn't done. This episode is based on what we know from reporting so far. And speaking of reporting, here to help us answer some of these questions is the post-national security reporter, Greg Miller. Greg is a major part of the national security team that has been breaking tons of stories lately, and he has reported extensively on Michael Flynn. Greg, I know you are taking time out of what is an incredibly busy schedule to be here. Thank you so much much. Sure, absolutely. Great. So let's just get started with kind of this overarching question, which is, who is Michael Flynn? Besides, you know, the national security advisor who was forced to resign earlier Mm -hmm. this year, who is this man? So Michael Flynn was an army general, but he was a special kind of army general. He was, he came up through the intelligence ranks of the U.S. military, and he had a highly decorated career. He was in the middle of a lot of important things in Afghanistan and Iraq. And he worked closely with important people, including General Stanley McChrystal. So he really played an important role, particularly in the development of this um, counterinsurgency capability that relied on U.S. special forces using constant streams of intelligence to do raid after raid after raid in, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan to try to unravel insurgent networks. And he helped build the, that model. Uh, and that was a really important development. So he's then had been widely respected for doing so? Yeah, he was a respected career military intelligence officer. I mean, so respected that he uh, went on to hold high-level jobs in, in the intelligence realm. He became director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, he served on the joint staff at the Pentagon. So, yeah, he, he had a lot of important positions. And he, he worked as the head of the DIA under President Obama. He left that job. Can you explain why? He had been at that job for a year or so, and there were growing concerns in the Obama administration just how, I guess, they were, there were questions about his, his temperament and his, his ability to lead that big an organization. DIA is this big, sprawling intelligence agency with thousands and thousands of employees scattered around the the globe. It's not like a small military intelligence cell that you might see uh, overseas in a combat environment. So it required a very different kind of leadership. And Flynn, you know, is sort of a chaotic guy. His ability to lead that organization led to a lot of morale problems, led to a lot of friction with higher-ups at the Pentagon, and I think they got pretty fed up with it and ultimately sort of pushed him out. 
Can you elaborate at all on what what led to that friction? What about him being a chaotic leader was kind of difficult for higher ups to deal with? So there were there were some some questions about his follow through on on requests or orders that came down from higher levels in the Pentagon. He was trying to engineer a big reorganization of the DIA and his ability to carry that out became a problem. There was a lot of sources were talking to us at the time about a great deal of turmoil in the upper ranks of the DIA sort of not, you know, approaching sort of mutiny levels where you had senior officials at the DIA going over Mike, Michael Flynn's head, going to the DNI, going to other officials at the Pentagon saying, this place is crazy over here. And one of the little nuggets that we had in a story we did about him a, a little more than a year ago was that he's always been the sort of um, shoot from the hip personality. And they started coining this term called Flynn facts, you know, at, at DIA, where they were assertions that Flynn would make that nobody could really ground in any actual evidence or, or real basis. He would just assert things. This is true. That's true. And his staff was constantly trying to clean up after him and say, boss, you can't really say that. That's not quite right. So then how did it come to be that Michael Flynn got involved with the Donald Trump campaign? So when Flynn was pushed out at DIA, he was clearly bitter about how he was handled, how he was treated. Um, The way Flynn tells it and the way he told us in an interview in 2015, uh, 2016, I should say, was that he he was offering his advice to numerous candidates, was willing to meet with any and all of them. Uh, But Trump is the candidate who attached himself to Flynn most quickly. For Trump, he was useful. Here's a retired three-star guy willing to show up and speak um, and rouse up the crowds with these enthusiastic speeches and things like that, get the crowd going. Yes, that's right. Lock her up. I'm going to tell you what. It's Introduce Trump, give him this sort of burnished... Um, you know, a, a general with a bunch of medals on his chest who's endorsing this renegade candidate for president. OK, so then Donald Trump gets elected. What happens to Michael Flynn in terms of his role after that? So Flynn, you know, at one point was rumored to be being vetted as a potential vice presidential candidate with Trump. That didn't work out. Then there were rumors he was going to be named director of national intelligence. And I think there's reason to think that that's the job he really wanted. But there were aspects of Flynn's background that might have made it hard for him to get through a Senate confirmation. He'd been under investigation a couple times, IG investigations, for sharing intelligence inappropriately in Afghanistan and for other reasons. Uh, And so pretty quickly after the election in November, Trump designates Flynn as his national security advisor. That's a really, really important job. That means he is the guy who is going to be the closest person to the president in the White House on all national security issues and is going to have enormous sway over the entire national security community, Pentagon, State Department, CIA, everything. Flynn had gone from being a complete outsider, basically kicked out of his final job in government by the Obama administration, into one of the highest level, most important, significant jobs in the White House of the fledgling Trump administration. Right. Which he did not hold for very long because he was eventually forced to resign. 24 days. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So... Michael Flynn keeps coming up. I mean, it seems like almost daily we get a news alert that mentions his name. He seems to be 
you know, just an incredible integral part of this entire saga of whether or not the Trump campaign had any coordination with the Russian government. So can you explain why? Why is it that Michael Flynn is kind of this larger than life story that he's so critical as a part of this narrative around Trump and Russia? Well, I think part of it is because the um, the details are, are now so clear. You know, there are these murky questions about a lot of other figures in Trump's inner circle, what their connections to Russia were. With Flynn, a lot of that is now clear, right? He was caught in an intelligence um, surveillance operation speaking with the Russian ambassador about U.S. sanctions against Moscow. And then he's caught lying or misleading the vice president, Sean Spicer, and other members of the administration about it. So part of the reason that he keeps surfacing is because the facts are pretty well established. What he did, we know more about than, than some of the other figures in Trump's inner circle. But I think the other part of it is that re, another reason that he continues to resurface is that the, the administration, the White House, still has not given us an adequate explanation of how they overlooked all of these trouble signs, how they overlook all of these red flags and still put Flynn in this position. So all of these red flags have led to multiple investigations into Michael Flynn, which raises the question how many of Flynn's actions might have potentially broken the law. Alex Whiting is a professor of practice at Harvard Law School, and he's here to break down some of the legal challenges that Flynn faces. Here's Alex. Let's start at the relative beginning here, which is, first, Michael Flynn talked to the Russian ambassador on the phone several times. That was back in late December. And he told Mike Pence that during those conversations, he did not talk about sanctions, sanctions that had been placed on Russia in response to their meddling in the U.S. elections. So it was later reported by The Post that he did, in fact, discuss sanctions on those phone calls. Is it illegal or legal, to discuss sanctions with a foreign government during this transition period? So the answer is no, it's not legal. It's a violation of what's called, um, or it's a potential violation of what's called the Logan Act. Now, that is not a law that is often or even ever prosecuted, so you might say it's a kind of technical violation, but that law prohibits American officials from those sorts of communications when they're not in government um, with foreign officials. And so that would be that would be what that violation would be. Right. So that that brings up my next question, which is Flynn also told the FBI that he did not discuss sanctions in those phone calls with the Russian ambassador that we later found out contradicts the transcripts of the phone calls. So if he did, in fact, lie to the FBI, is that legal? Is that illegal? So lying to the FBI is a serious crime. It's a violation of 18 U.S.C. 1001, uh, and that is a crime that is prosecuted. And it's not 100 percent clear whether he lied in that, in that interview on January 24th of, of this year. Uh, there have been contradictory reports about whether he said, I, c- I can't remember all the details, whether he flatly said, I did not discuss sanctions. Um, there are a lot of indications that he did lie because remember that it was just after that interview that Sally Yates went to the White House to warn the White House about Michael Flynn. I don't think she would have done that if he had been uh, truthful or had been trying to be truthful in his FBI interview. Let's just rewind a little bit. 
2015, Michael Flynn was paid more than $45,000 by RT, which is a Kremlin-funded media outlet. He was paid for participating in a panel in Moscow. And then he was paid more money by them to speak in Washington. He also did lobbying work that may have benefited the Turkish government. So it's not necessarily illegal to accept money from a from a foreign government, right? Correct. But it is illegal to not register with the Department of Justice as a foreign agent? That's correct. That's another statute that Flynn may have run afoul of is the uh, Foreign Agent Registration Act. As you said, um, it's permissible to accept money and to, to be a lobbyist for a foreign government, but there are strict requirements on registration, and Flynn did not do that, failed to register. He did it later. He did it months later, belatedly, after yeah, he was fired. he did it in March. Right. Correct, March of this year. But he did not do it at the time. And then perhaps the more serious uh, allegation is that he lied about receiving these funds. It's still kind of unclear, like you said, whether he disclosed the information about being paid by foreign governments when he actually applied to reinstate his security clearance in order to become national security advisor. If he, in fact, didn't disclose that information, would that would that be a violation? Would that be illegal? Yes, yes. And there are now some strong indications that uh, he did fail to disclose that information when he was getting his security clearance uh, Representative Cummings uh, released a letter in which he indicated that, based on his review of the security clearance application, Flynn had failed to disclose uh, receiving that information. And that is, again, lying on official forms. That is also a federal crime and a serious crime. Okay, so that brings us to kind of early May. So earlier this month, Flynn refuses to turn over documents that have been subpoenaed. And earlier just this week, even Flynn invoked the Fifth Amendment in his kind of refusal to comply with that request from the Senate Intelligence Committee. Can you explain the law surrounding those choices not to comply? Can he be held in contempt of Congress, for example? So the first thing that's important to to note is that Flynn does have a Fifth Amendment right in the face of subpoenas from the Senate Intelligence Committee or any other congressional investigative committees. He has a Fifth Amendment right to refuse to testify. He also has a narrow Fifth Amendment right to refuse to turn over documents. But it is with documents, it is much more difficult because the documents themselves do not have a Fifth Amendment protection because they were produced voluntarily, not under compulsion. And the Fifth Amendment only protects against compelled testimony that might be self-incriminating, and the documents were not compelled. What would be a reason why he would take the Fifth Amendment here? Well, he's represented by counsel, and defense counsel will always be cautious about allowing their clients when they may be the target of an investigation, and, and Flynn is obviously a potential target of this investigation, to cooperate and provide information which may incriminate them. So, um, there's nothing wrong with a defense lawyer asserting the rights of the client to the full extent possible. Now, of course, Flynn himself, ironically, has said in the past that anybody who asserts the Fifth Amendment privilege must have something to hide, some criminality that they're hiding. Um, but most most prosecutors and defense lawyers don't see it that way. It's just part of the process of witnesses asserting their um, their rights that they're entitled to. Yeah, yeah. As you mentioned there, Trump himself actually has said 
if you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? And it's something both of them have said in regards to immunity, which is something else that Michael Flynn has suggest or that it's been reported that Michael Flynn was seeking in some of these legal proceedings was was asking for immunity. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Right. Um, so um, some weeks ago, uh, there were reports that Michael Flynn was asking for immunity to testify before the uh, congressional committees. And unsurprisingly, the committees refused to consider granting that immunity. The problem with immunity is that if you immunize somebody, even if you give them what's called use immunity, which is just a promise that their words won't be used against them directly or indirectly, they can still be prosecuted, but their words can't be used against them. It, even if you give them that kind of immunity, it is still very hard to prosecute them down the road because it's very hard for the prosecutor to show that they have made no use of the words of the witness. If somebody is a target, a potential target of an investigation, there's no way that either the congressional investigators or the prosecutor will grant immunity unless it's part of a for example, plea deal in which the person agrees to plead guilty to crimes and gets some form of immunity in order to testify against other individuals. From my understanding, and really correct me if I'm wrong here, but his request for immunity and his pleading the fifth, those are both in regards to the congressional investigations, right? Not the FBI investigation. As far as we know, as far as we know, um, there, there may, we don't know if there have been communications uh, between the Justice Department um, now between Mueller's team and Flynn. Um, but all the discussions that have been public have been about the congressional investigations. That's correct. Right. And the congressional committees, they can't actually file criminal charges. That's correct. Uh, their their job is to investigate, to fulfill their oversight function, to decide if reforms are needed, if the executive branch should, for example, uh, change personnel, change practices, and also whether legislation is required what, uh, to address these more systemic problems. But that's correct. They cannot file criminal charges. Okay. So... That's kind of all of this, all of the legal complexity of this. But what happens next? Well, I, the, the the charges that are uh, being discussed, in particular the the false statements, lying charges, are serious charges. And I would expect that if he were prosecuted and found guilty of those charges, he would uh, face jail time. Now, of course, if he were prosecuted, he might decide to start cooperating with the investigation. And if he were willing to cooperate and provide truthful testimony, he might have a lot of information to provide about um, other officials in the administration. So that's another way that this could, could go in the future. And I think what's going to happen is the focus is going to shift over to the Mueller investigation. That investigation will be conducted quietly uh, and may take some months. So the the Michael Flynn story might soon disappear from the news for um, for a number of months uh, until Mueller makes a decision about whether he should be charged and, uh, and, and Flynn makes a decision about uh, whether he'll cooperate with the criminal investigation. The 
So just this week, the New York Times reported that last summer, Russian officials were trying to figure out how they could exert influence over Trump and particularly how they could do so through Michael Flynn and also potentially through Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort. So should we expect more revelations like this that that reflect this idea that a target from the Russians might have been Michael Flynn? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's completely logical. This is what This is the reason Russia is doing what it did, you know, in terms of cultivating relationships with these people close to Trump. There is what Russia did during the election, the hacking, the stealing of emails, the posting of all that to WikiLeaks, all of this stuff to disrupt an election and in the end try to help Trump win. And then there is this other activity, which is more consistent with what an intelligence service always does, trying to get relationships with people of power or influence. And so I think that uh, it's inevitable we're going to learn more about Flynn and his ties to Russia, because that is really still under such a major microscope, right? The FBI is still looking at those relationships between Flynn and the Russian ambassador and Flynn's financial arrangements with RT and so forth. The FBI is digging into all of that. The House Intelligence Committee is as well, Senate Intelligence Committee. I'm sure we'll continue to be learning details about Michael Flynn and his dealings with Russia for quite some time. Yeah, it sure seems like it. So it's also been reported that the Obama administration actually warned the Trump team not to hire Flynn. And even New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who for a period of time led the transition, he has recently said that he warned Trump not to hire Flynn. Why didn't the Trump administration heed these warnings? Well, I mean, that's a huge question. And that's part of the reason why this issue won't go away, because the the answers aren't very convincing so far. I do think that part of it just comes back to Trump's personality. He is stubborn. He values loyalty. Flynn represents loyalty to him. Supposedly smart Washington insiders telling Trump not to do something might just be the best recipe to have him do that same thing. So there's a couple of different things that Flynn has done, many of which you've mentioned. But then there's this overall theme of whether or not there was actually any coordination between Trump and Russia. And they're kind of, in some ways, they can be two separate things. You know, there's a lot of questions of does all of these pieces that revolve around Flynn add up to something more than smoke? How deeply are they intertwined with the likelihood that Trump's campaign officials did, in fact, coordinate with the Russian government? Is it possible that, you know, these are just two separate things and they they aren't intertwined and all of this stuff with Flynn is its own story? Yeah, it's possible that all of this is disconnected, that the Russians are cultivating Manafort, they're cultivating Carter Page. Separately, they're working with Flynn. And Flynn does sort of fall in a different category. He does not go way back with Donald Trump. I mean, they met each other after after Trump begins his run for president and joins the campaign even later than that. So it's not like they have this long history. So it's not like Russia saw Michael Flynn as a future national security advisor in a Trump administration. Frankly, nobody saw that. But what they did see is a is a guy who has who's who's important in the Trump campaign, who's willing to meet with with Russian officials, willing to talk with them and appears to share Trump's um, affinity for Moscow, sees, believes the U.S. is viewing Moscow in the wrong way. Too much, too focused on seeing Russia as an adversary when there could be so many ways we could, might be partners with Russia. You know, I guess I sort of remain skeptical that we will ever see evidence that Flynn was involved directly in collusion with Russia as part of that is in any way really connected to the election interference that we saw. In other words, that we'll learn someday that Michael Flynn knew that the Russian intelligence service was hacking into the Democratic computer networks and planning to dump it all to WikiLeaks. I don't think so. 
I could be wrong, but, uh, but that's not where I would put my money right now. Just our last question here. For this episode, you know, we usually look at something President Trump has done and we answer, can the president, a president, do that particular thing? Here we went with a little bit of a different direction. And in this case, we looked at what Michael Flynn can and can't do. But when you look at what's been reported thus far, what you've discovered about Michael Flynn's actions dating back to at least 2015, can Michael Flynn walk away from all of this just unscathed? Can he do that? Uh, no. I mean, whether he ends up um, facing a real criminal liability, I mean, it sure seems increasingly likely, right? I mean, that just seems increasingly obvious that the FBI is looking at him very closely. And when the FBI does that, they often find something. Um, But even beyond that, even if Flynn ultimately escapes criminal culpability here, his decisions to lead the fifth um, and refuse to cooperate with investigations on the Hill, refuse to comply with subpoenas, I mean, these are things that will follow him, whatever happens next for him. His ability to rebuild a company as a consultant advising, you know, countries overseas or governments or entities here in the United States. I mean, these are these things that have we have learned about Michael Flynn are going to follow him forever. Greg, thank you so much for being here. You guys can follow Greg on Twitter at Greg P. Miller. Or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. And if you guys liked this, share it, review it on Apple Podcasts, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and keep on listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the delightful Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. If you like Can He Do That, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart where Jonathan's interviews reveal the people behind today's biggest news. Or try Presidential, where host Lillian Cunningham spent a year exploring the character and legacy of each of the American presidents. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.